Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. And then today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Siona. Good morning, reunion family. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Really glad that you are here today. If you're uh, new today, we're particularly glad you're here. And please don't hesitate to hang around for a few minutes after, meet a new friend, um, and say hello. I know finding a new church can be a very difficult thing. It can be very tough. And so I hope that um, when you come to reunion as we gather, that it would be a place of uh, welcome and safety and exploration. So Um, As a community, we uh, have been going through Mark's gospel to get a new and renewed vision of the person of Jesus. And what we've been trying to figure out is, who is Jesus? What is he trying to do? Why is Jesus still worth following in 2022? And it's exciting to me, in the very least, that where we're actually at in Mark is about to be a sort of turn or transition. It's it's sort of like a fulcrum point. Um, The easiest way to break it down is uh, on the screen here. In Mark chapter, um, Act Act 1 uh, is Mark 1 through 8, and we're just asking the question, who is Jesus? And then the transition is about to happen in the next couple of weeks. We'll move into Act 2, Mark 9 through 16, and it's really answering the question, why did Jesus come? And so we're just getting like a two-handed approach to the book where we're trying to figure out who is Jesus, what is he like, what is his nature and character, how did he interact with people. And the interesting thing about this is, in, um, is the location. In Mark 1 through 8, um, Jesus has been outside of Jerusalem. He's been in Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea Philippi. He's been in the Decapolis, and we're finding him moving a lot. And then in the last few chapters, we're going to see him hone in on Jerusalem, and he's going um, to be heading towards his death. And so there's a little transition. And what this actually, when I was studying this week, what it actually got me thinking about is where we're heading as a church and what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And help me, um, it helped me think through um, and want to communicate to you some of the things that we have coming up. Plus, I don't really like summer, and so I'm just thinking about the fall a lot. And so what's ahead? So our summer community groups are already halfway through, going great. And um, I hope that you're in one um, sharing life together where I think that maybe the best way to describe it is hopefully in a community group setting, you're finding friends that are like family. 
and there's an openness in that way. You're connecting with others, but you're also, it's a space where you're connecting with God. And so these are going to finish up at the end of the month. We're going to take a short break as we prepare for fall. And so our fall community groups are actually going to begin the week of September 11th. And in our community groups and on Sunday mornings, we're actually going to pause the Gospel of Mark. Um, and from, the, from September to the end of November, we're going to be exploring the connection between spiritual health and emotional health um, through something called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Anybody read the book? Okay, quite a few of you. Very good. Um, and uh, don't worry if you haven't. The, the basic premise is it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so we're going to dive headfirst into this. It's not, it's like something you got to like really participate in if you want to um, get something out of it. But um, we have a society, a culture that's in crisis around mental and emotional health. And we want to be realistic about that. Depression, anxiety, loneliness, um, distance from our families. Uh, there's a lot to grieve from the last couple of years. And so we want to set aside this time intentionally to do this in community and then to do this um, on Sunday morning. Um, so topics include knowing yourself that you may know God, um, going back into like our personal stories in order to go forward, enlarging our soul through grief and loss, and uh, another one is establishing a rhythm of Sabbath rest. And so how are we integrating these into our spiritual life so that we would also be emotionally healthy people? And then lastly, um, alongside our fall community groups, on Sunday nights, we're going to be running uh, a 10-week gathering called Alpha. And Alpha is a place to explore the Christian faith um, in a non-judgmental, discussion-based environment. There'll be food involved, a short video, and then a discussion. If you're new to Christianity, if you're skeptical about it, or you have a friend that you would want to bring along with you, uh, it would be a really great environment um, to do that in. Um, and so lots to look forward to. Uh, September, one-year anniversary of our church, um, October membership class, tons of opportunities to, to serve and to give back. And uh, that's kind of the lay of land because um, we're already halfway through the year. It goes so fast. So, all right, let's pray and then uh, we'll get into this Mark chapter 8 passage. Father, I love you and I'm just overjoyed at the ways that you're at work in our community. Um, and I just pray that... Um, the church would never just be a place, but it would always be a people, that we are your church, that we get to embody uh, this good news, this gospel that we talk so often about. And I pray today um, that our lives would come up against uh, the questions that your son Jesus asks, the ways that we don't understand, the ways that we're wrong, the ways that we're weak, the ways that we're limited, the ways that we have doubts. I pray that uh, those would be met um, with your grace this morning. And Lord, I need your help um, thinking about this passage, the complexity of it. Um, I just want to approach it with humility and to just ask God, would you uh, use this time to speak to us? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I was reading this passage this week, and it just made me chuckle. Verse, um, verse 12 of Mark 8, it says, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given. And I love that phrase, he sighed deeply in his spirit. The original language reads, he groaned. <sighs> right? Uh, the, the word groaned here is anastanazine. Um, it's a rare word. It's actually only found here in the New Testament. And um, examining Greek, uh, ancient Greek literature, it's only found about 30 times. And the expression um, in all of that survey is, reveals is not an expression used of anger or indignation, but actually of dismay and despair. 
Anastanazine is actually used to describe a person who um, has found themselves in a situation where they've been pushed to their limits. <sighs> Do they not understand, right? Jesus is tired, and he's worn down by those around him. I sort of imagine Jesus uh, like a ninth-grade algebra teacher whose class is full of students who simply aren't grasping the concepts. Where's my non-math people at, right? Like, okay, I see you. We've been there, right? We're the reason the teacher grades on the curve, and we get it, all right? But I want to honor the fact here, as we kind of um, maybe approach this a little bit backwards, right? Jesus is like, oh, like the disciples. But I kind of want to honor the fact that I've been the ninth grade math kid, right? And the teacher is groaning at me like, why do you not understand? I was the ninth grade math kid that was lost. And so Jesus says, do you not understand? Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Do you not have ears to hear? And my response is, I don't get it, right? Like, I think there's times in our faith where we actually have to just come and confess, like, no, that's, that's actually it. I'm, I'm not understanding. I have wrestlings. I have doubts. I have questions. My felt experience doesn't always match up with what the church says. My ideological bent on the world and my culture actually push up against the biblical narrative. Or I look at passages in, in the Bible when I say, God, would you give me answer? And we get more questions, right? More questions. And actually, in, in one sense, that's what the Bible is really brilliant at, is it helps us ask the right questions before it gives us the answer. But we wrestle, right? And we have doubts. Could Jesus really rise from the dead? Is this thing that's talked about really true? And Jesus looks at the disciples full in the face, and he says, do you not yet understand? So the question today is, what is, what is it that Jesus does want us to understand? What, what, what is he wanting us to grasp? And so let's just look at the context for just for a second. Last week, Emily taught on the feeding of the 4,000. It was amazing. She's amazing. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to that. But in Mark's gospel, before he feeds the 4,000, the text says, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Jesus saw hungry bellies, and it stirred him. It, it moved him, right? And the thing about Jesus, this is what's so brilliant about him, he never wastes an opportunity to teach people around him. And so we think it's about like the tangible side of things, and Jesus is like, well, actually, I'm going to use this as a lesson. And so the Pharisees and the disciples come to him after the feeding, and that's what I want to do today is look at these two different reactions, one of the first of the Pharisees and then of the disciples. And then uh, as we wrap up, I just want to give you sort of like three what-ifs. Um, questions. And so we'll start looking at the unbelief of the Pharisees, and then we'll look at the doubt of the disciples. So it starts in verse 11 like this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so it's basically clear, or Mark is trying to make it clear to us uh, through this sort of inflammatory language that the disciples have no interest in understanding or following Jesus. Uh, the, the usage there that they came is a military word, and it, it actually means something like they came in droves, like they came to gang up on Jesus and to argue with him. And then it says they came to test him. And the original language there is not like an objective test or like trying to discover the merits of something but it's an obstacle. They're trying to create a stumbling block. They're trying to trap Jesus. And one of the regular features of the Gospels is that Jesus refused to perform miracles on demand. Like, he wasn't trying to dazzle the crowds and, and impress them. And in one sense, you might ask, well, Jesus, you just fed 5,000 people. You just found, 
you just fed 4,000 people. Why not just find some people to feed, and maybe the Pharisees will believe in you. You can get the religious elite of the day to believe in you. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm not interested in that. And the reason, the primary reason is, is that Jesus actually came with true compassion. He didn't come to objectify people in that way. He didn't need to show up and impress people. Because miracles, what would miracles do? Miracles would attract a bunch of fans to him, right? But Jesus wasn't looking for fans. Jesus is looking for disciples with faith, tough enough to withstand doubt and disappointment. And I think this is just like a sidebar moment sermon for a second. It's like the church needs to learn from this. Like the church has enough fanfare. Like there's enough smoke and lights and culture war fighting in the church today. The question I think for the church, um, the, the, like the capital C global church is like, will the church have deep disciples following the suffering and sacrificial Jesus? Like, will we do that hard work rather than like a big show? And the Pharisees, the thing about them is they're asking for a sign, but they have no, they have no intention of following Jesus. They have no intention from learning from Jesus or seeing if he's worth um, pursuing because they just want to prove themselves right. Um, the Pharisees are wrestling with what we know as confirmation bias. Uh, this is a great 20, this is like the election word, right? The tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Closed off from learning, right? You're taking in new information that has the potential to change your mind, to make you think, to help you grow, but in reality, we're actually using it to double down on what we already believe. Uh, here's a little cartoon. Um, it says, that's strange. I remember it differently in a way that aligns with my worldview and casts me in a positive light, right? <laughs> this, is, this is like the Pharisees to a T. They're not willing to change their mind, fully solidified in their beliefs. And the thing I think that's really crucial for us is they couldn't even just say in the slightest, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? Isn't it hard to be wrong? Like just, just painful. Like, sometimes we even feel it, like, in emotional sense. It just, like, bubbles up, like, physically in us. Like, oh, if I do that, it's going to bring me some shame. It's going it's it's to mean I'm less. Uh, have you ever been to a neighborhood in the city? Um, like, you, you go somewhere, you get off the train, and you begin to realize, I don't know which way is north, south, east, west. You ever done this before? Um, and Google is always the answer, right? Just, like, pull out your phone, and it'll tell you which direction you're facing and go. A couple of years ago, um, I, I had this happen to me, except my phone at the time, I, I don't know if there's a compass in there or not, um, but like it, it would point the wrong direction. And so you just have to guess and like, good luck. And so I was like, all right, I'll just go this way. And so I just started walking. I was, I was not that, I was in, I think I was in bed And so I just started walking only to realize that like I'm going the wrong way and I just need to like turn around and go the exact opposite way. And I was like, wait, but there's people around me. <laughs> okay, wait. So if I take a right here, and then I take a right on the next block, I go a little ways, and then I take another right, I was like, I think, I, I think I'd be there, and I don't have to admit, like, anything, right? I was like, Russell, don't be stupid. And so I literally just pulled one of these. <laughs> Going that way. Who's done this before? Please tell me. Okay, everyone, right? We've all done this. Thank you. Why is it so hard? Like, why do I even think for a second that I need to rationalize this in my mind? Like, someone actually cares that I'm going the right way, Right? Three of the hardest words to say, I was wrong. 
Think about the implications of this, though, um, in, in, if you're in a dating relationship, friendship, whatever. Imagine someone wronging you, and, and you're fully expecting them to come and defend themselves, gives you, give you reasons why they wronged you, and they just come to you and say, I have no excuses, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. I want to be in that friendship. Like, I want to be in that. Why is that so difficult for us? And the, and the thing about the, the text is, it's actually impossible to learn. It's impossible to learn if we're not willing to expand our ideas. It's impossible to learn if we can't possibly say, I could be wrong in this scenario. Let me take in your information and see if it might change me, right? Instead, we often have a sort of confirmation bias. And so, the problem for the Pharisees isn't doubt. The disciples are, doubt, are doubting, and we'll get there. The problem with the Pharisees is unbelief, right? Unbelief. Unbelief is, I will not believe. Doubt is, I'm wrestling, I'm struggling. Unbelief is stubborn, where doubt is actually covered with honesty. It's an exploration, right? Unbelief is like, I'm actually content in the darkness, but doubt is saying, I'm seeking the light. And so Jesus could have brought all the evidence in the world to the Pharisees, and it would have never been enough. And I, what I find really fascinating about this passage is in verse 13, Jesus, it just says this, and he left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. He just turned his back on them. He was like, they're not going to change. But the cool thing in our passage is they're not the only ones struggling. Maybe, maybe even a little bit more of a distressing feature for us is that the people in closest proximity to Jesus, his disciples, are wrestling with who he is. Jesus gets into the boat, and what do the disciples say? We forgot the leftovers. I always forget the leftovers, right? The waiter comes and says, like, would you like to take that to go? Yes. I leave it on the table nine times out of ten. Please tell me you're with me, somebody. Okay, thank you. All right. They left the leftovers. What is going on, right? And it's interesting in the text, you kind of got to read between the lines, but it seems like the disciples are like, no, you left the leftovers on the table. No, like, you left the leftovers on the table. You weren't looking at it. You left them. And Jesus is like, okay, you guys are morons. Let me use this as an opportunity to teach you. Verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod's. And so he's like, okay, you guys are talking about bread and leftovers. I'll pick up the metaphor and I'll run with it. Leaven is leftovers. Leaven is actually leftover dough. And so if you're making uh, bread, you bake it, um, and, and this time you'd probably bake every week. And so there would actually be leftover bits of dough. And what you do is you'd um, take that leaven, you'd set it over to the side and let it ferment. And over time, it acted like yeast. And what does yeast do is it actually um, feeds on sugar in the flour, and then it begins to release carbon dioxide, and it begins to expand and grow. And it doesn't take much, right? Like, I don't know if any of you ever done sourdough. It just, it just takes a little bit, and you just got to feed it, and it just begins to expand and grow. The interesting thing is when um, leaven or yeast are mentioned in the Bible, it actually is always about corruption. It's always about something coming in and taking over. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is looking at the disciples and he's saying, okay, the Pharisees, just a little bit of their unbelief, a little bit of their tainted religiosity, a little bit of their moralism, a little bit of their pride is going to spread in your faith like cancer. Just a little bit of what they have in you is going to grow. And you see it, right? The, the disciples, what are they doing? They're focused on the fact that they have no bread. They're focused on their circumstances. They're consumed with the material. And then what are they doing? 
They're making it about themselves. No, you left the bread. No, you left the bread. No, you left the bread. Jesus is saying, guys, haven't you been paying attention this whole time? I've been with you. I've been providing for you. I've been showing you what God is like. I'm taking you on a journey, and I've been explaining things all along the way. And we say, oh, yeah, that's kind of, we just kind of cruise along the passage. But this is like incredible implications for our lives. Times in our lives where we say, Okay, God did something awesome. He answered a prayer. He uh, gave us comfort. We had a sense like, wow, I'm actually, I actually feel like I'm within God's will. I prayed for God's will. God is working. He's faithful. I know it. And then like next week happens, right? And you have a discouraging conversation with your boss. And you're like, God, where are you? And if you would just take the time to pause and reflect, God was with you last week when he answered your prayers, right? He's there. And so Jesus is like, just pushing in on them. And I think it's um, the culmination of eight chapters worth of frustration towards the disciples. And so these are Jesus' questions. Do you still not perceive? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can you not see? Can you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you still not understand? Pretty intense, right? Like, Jesus, slow, slow down, all right? Disciples are doubting, and they're forgetful. I, I actually really appreciated that one. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? He's like, you forgot something. And I think that we, we need to be more honest. I'm going to say it this way. We doubt, right? Like, we believed at one point, but life happened. Or we doubt because we failed to see God at work in our circumstances, or let's be honest, some of us doubt because we went to a church or we were part of a church and that church disappointed us or somebody within the church disappointed us, they backstabbed us, they forgot about us, we, went, we were there and we left and no one ever said anything. That hurts. And you know what that does? It spirals. We say, you know what? A person hurt me. I had an argument with a person. And then it was like, ah, oh, that community group kind of neglected me. And then it spirals a little bit further. And we say, you know, the church kind of forgot about me. And if we're not careful, I think this is what Jesus is saying about the leaven. It expands, it grows like cancer. And then eventually we say, well, you know what? The church is a mess. The person's messed up. The group's messed up. The church messed up. I don't even know if God is really that great. Maybe God is messed up. And it just sort of spirals. Or maybe in a, in a very real way you doubt, and I, I, I want to empathize with you here, maybe you doubt because tragedy or suffering struck you or your family, and it puts into question the goodness of God. That is real, and that should be talked about and understood. And I'm not here to solve that for you today, whatever that doubt may be. I'm not trying to stir up any emotion in you. I actually just want to draw it to the surface so that you could acknowledge it, because I think this text is actually really beautiful. Jesus is asking some pretty tough questions about what we believe and then how that begins to manifest. I define faith like this, trusting that God is who he says that he is, and he'll do all he promised to do. This is what we're trying to do as a church, put our faith, put our trust in Jesus, trusting that he is who he says he is, and he's going to do all the things that he promised to do. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. It's the culmination of eight chapters, and he's saying, I see you're doubting. I see you're doubting. I see you're forgetful. Watch this. And that's why he's going to continue on for seven more chapters. There's a lot more. Do you not yet understand? And so here's what I want to do. I just want to ask, I just want to put out in front of you, like I said, I don't want to solve this really today. I just want to put three what-if questions in front of you, and I want to pair the first two with a practice. Um, if, if you would say, this is me, then you can just try this practice out, take it or leave it, all right? So here's the first one. What if doubt is a step 
in the spiritual journey? What if doubt is a step in the spiritual journey? I always like to say that doubt is faith-seeking understanding, right? It's, it's seeking out the light like we talked about. One of the features of this text that's, that's actually quite funny to me is if you take chapter 8 as a whole and you just zoom out, um, Jesus says this right in the middle of the chapter, and you're like, he kind of chews them out. What happens next, right? Like, that's what you, if you're into drama, you know, it's like, they got in a fight? Like, what happened next, right? This is what's crazy. Jesus is like, do you not see? Do you not understand? Are you deaf? Verse 21 ends, do you not yet understand? Here's verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him not to touch them. What? What does Jesus do? He just keeps going with them, right? It's crazy to me. Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to chew you out, and then I'm going to keep going with you. Like, he doesn't abandon them because they're doubting, and he's showing us that doubt is actually a clear element of our faith. They're struggling to understand, and what is their job? Keep journeying alongside me, right? Keep in proximity with me. I find great comfort in this, right? Like, Jesus chews them out, and I'm like, okay, like, I, I was failing to see. I was wrestling. I was doubting. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's keep going, right? It's hard, right, to see whatever, whatever it may be, whether you're failing to see God at work in your circumstances, whether real suffering has come your way, whatever reason the doubt is, I think that the invitation is, how are you taking steps with your doubt in your spiritual journey? I like how Tim Keller says it. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blindly go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts, which should, be only, should only be discarded after long reflection. What about it this way? Like, what if doubt isn't the problem? but doubt is problematic. What if the, your doubt, the thing that you're wrestling with, is not the problem, but it can grow problematic as it spirals out of control, as it grows into maybe what, um, what the Pharisees were struggling with, which is like full-on unbelief. And so if you find yourself in a season of doubt, for whatever reason it is, here's the practice for you today. Get a doubt companion. Get a Doubt Companion. Uh, this comes from Philip Yancey. Um, it was a really amazing uh, article he wrote um, about doubt. But he, he talked about in the article the ways in which um, doubt begins to isolate us and that we actually need to journey alongside other people. And so here's the challenge. If you're really struggling with doubts, don't go alone in them. And I just ask you, are you sharing what you're going through with other people? Are you open about it? Are you keeping in proximity with others that are actually already um, keeping in proximity with Jesus? Um, in the article, um, Philip Yancey quoted a woman by the name of Annie Dwyer. She said, I surround myself with belief the way the blind surround themselves with those who can see. And so if you're struggling, if you're wrestling, put other people around you that can hold you accountable to what you're experiencing and what you're going through that can tell you the truth in love. And so maybe that looks like asking a friend, like, I'm struggling with doubt for X reason. Would you meet with me every other week for eight weeks? So I can just share that with you, so I can stay on top of it, so I can be honest about it. That would be you taking a step in your spiritual journey with your doubt rather than holding it in. So that's the first what if. What if doubt is a step in the spiritual journey? And then here's the next one. What if you're wrong? 
Like, what, what if you began with the premise that you were wrong? Like, in this, the, the, on a small scale, like in the day-to-day relationships, like, what if you just began with the premise that you don't have all the answers, that you could be wrong? What if, what if in this recapturing of this story, I, I love that it doesn't solve much for you. Like, it just kind of stirs up a bunch of problems for us, Jesus asking all these questions. But what if that's actually what we're supposed to wrestle with? is that Jesus doesn't provide them with anything but tension so that they clearly are wrong in his opinion. Do you not see? Do you not understand? Can you not perceive? But what if the disciples could just admit it? Jesus, we were wrong. We didn't have faith. We didn't trust you. We were looking for bread, even though we know you've provided over and over and over and over again. We were wrong to mistrust your provision. Last week, I was on a, um, on a bike ride with my daughter. Um, we have a, uh, like a bike, and it has a bike seat on the back, and she just absolutely loves biking all over the city. Um, and so she and I are biking up First Ave um, last weekend, and we were about to cro- um, cross Houston. And it's a pretty busy intersection there. And so we're coming into the intersection, and um, we have the right-of-way, and so you know, we're driving right through. And I see this big postal truck um, beginning to turn left. And I can't tell if he doesn't see us and he's going to keep going or if he's just coming out into the intersection to yield. And so I'm like, I'm assuming he's going to stop. And so I just keep going. And all of a sudden, at the very last minute, he hooks a U-turn into our bike lane. And so I slam on the brakes. And luckily, Rose and I were okay. Definitely scary for a second. But I'm like, I'm going to go yell at this guy. Like, I'm, I'm going to go freak out on him, you know? I actually wouldn't do that. I would have been like, you trying to kill a three-year-old and her dad? Like, that's what I would have done. And literally, um, I, I go up, and he has like this sliding window. He slides the window open, and the first thing he does is put out his hands. And he's like, I'm so sorry, I misunderstood the light. And like everything in me was like, I'm still angry, but like I'm fully disarmed. Like everything in me was like, ah, I still want to yell at you, but you're so kind to just say you misunderstood. And no other words really needed to be said. I just kind of like shook my head to shame him a little bit and like just started riding the bike again. And I was like, Rosie, you okay? And she's like, yeah, what happened, daddy? You know, it's like, it's, she doesn't even know. And I think that just that level of ownership, right? He never said he was wrong. I wish he would have. That would have made my point a lot better in the sermon. <laughs> I'm sorry. I misunderstood the light. He's just like, I'm wrong. And so maybe, here's a second practice. What if this week you intentionally practiced being wrong? Intentionally practiced being wrong. I think this could be really good for our souls. Like, find a small thing. It's going to be easy. You make, you make uh, faults all the time, right? I bet you've wronged someone. Examine it. Don't dwell on it. Don't judge. Acknowledge it. Go to the person and say, I was wrong. No excuses. If you misquote a fact, go to the person. I was wrong, right? Whatever it is, could be simple, could be a misunderstanding. Whatever it is, practice being wrong. Why do I think this is really, really, really important? I was thinking a lot this week um, about being right and being wrong. And I actually think um, in one sense, if you boil this down, this is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. It's your, your and I ability to say, I'm actually weak, I'm wrong, I don't have what it takes, I can't save myself, but God is right. And so on, like, if you were to just boil this down to like the most fundamental level, uh, approaching God like this, if you, want, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to make that choice, we say, Jesus, I'm wrong, I want to die to myself, and I want to live in you, and I choose you because I believe you are right. And so, 
Last one. What if faith is a daily choice? Every morning we wake up and we choose faith, which is, I'm trusting you again. Uh, Frederick Buchner says it like this, faith is better understood as a verb than a noun, as a process than a possession. It is an on-again, off-again rather than once and for all. Faith is not being sure where you're going, but going anyway, a journey without maps. Paul Tillich said that doubt isn't the opposite of faith, it is an element of faith better understood as a verb than a noun, ongoing process, not something you hold or own. There's a wonderful story, and I'll I'll wrap up here. There's a wonderful story of a Jesuit philosopher named uh, uh, John Cavanaugh. I think, uh, yeah, I did put a picture in there. John Cavanaugh um, went to work alongside Mother Teresa in Calcutta in 1975, Um, and for him, uh, he's also a priest. He was um, in a season of doubting, um, of um, searching for answers for some spiritual wrestlings that he was having. And um, he actually went all thousands of miles to India to just have Mother Teresa pray for him. And so he showed up and he said, on the very first day, he said, I want you to pray for me. And she said, well, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, I want you to pray that I would have clarity. And Mother Teresa firmly looked at him and said, no, I will not pray for that. And he said, why? She said, Clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and you must let go of. John Kavanaugh responded, but Mother Teresa, you always seem to have clarity. Why won't you pray for me in that? Mother Teresa laughed and replied this, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. And so I will pray that you trust God. A daily choice and rhythm. Are you doubting? Get a doubt companion. This week I want to see us practice as a community being wrong And let's wake up every day trusting again. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much. And Lord, if I'm honest, I'm just having so much fun um, learning from your word, just going through it and finding out um, things about who your son is, getting a renewed vision of you. And then it begins to, to get a little bit hard for us. It's, it's very, very real. The doubts and the wrestlings, the pride that we have, it seems like we're being torn down sometimes. But I pray that you would remind us today that we're not torn down um, without the help of being built back up by your son. And so as we come to the communion table now, um, I pray that we would be reminded in our heads, in our hearts, and in our bodies um, that you are a God that loves us, that you are a God that came in the flesh, embodied, and you went to the cross to take away our sins. And so the truth is, God, we are becoming aware of the ways that we're falling short, and I pray by your grace that you would meet us in that place to remind us that though we're weak, though we're wrong, you are right, and your cross is sufficient. And so meet us here as we take communion together today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.